0: Uh, We've gone through the growth curve. We looked at the nutrients that were needed, the macronutrients, the micronutrients, the physical requirements, you know, temperature and pH, and all the look at osmotic pressure effects. Uh, We went through all of that. And then we looked at uh, the last thing we looked at here was, uh, this would have been uh, how to maintain the the growth curve, uh, what each of the different parts are. Okay. Um, and then we went into measuring the amount of growth that you have, okay? We talked about uh, direct method, methods. So the advantage of direct methods is that you don't have to wait for them to grow. You're just going to count. And the typical way is microscopic. Um, put them in, on, on this uh, particular slide, uh, which we have a bunches up here, actually. Uh, actually, they're down in Hampton, but we, we, we have them. Uh, and you uh, you literally sample your your sample. You put a, a known amount under the slide. There's only only holds so much. A, the well in there is only going to hold a certain amount. Uh, and then you look through these grids. And usually nobody counts all of the little squares. Usually they pick five large squares to count everything within those five large squares. Try to equally sure they easily distributed around uh, and then they average those to get a count and then once you know how many you have uh, and you know what the volume of, of liquid there is under the slide you can calculate the concentration of the organisms and usually you have to uh, do some dilution of your sample before you can actually do this otherwise you have too many to count. Uh, and so you're looking at it under oil immersion and and it's uh, basically just a matter of looking at at this and and counting all the cells. Uh, It's fairly quick to do. It's uh, a little inaccurate because you will have some dead cells in there that you won't won't be obvious that they're dead because you're going to have to stain the cells. And a lot of newly dead cells are going to stain just like live cells. And and so when you're looking at them, you're not going to tell the difference. So you're probably going to overestimate uh, using this. But it is quick but uh, that's one of its advantages now there are some direct methods uh, some other direct methods there's an electronic counter uh, we talked about culture counters it's no different than looking at it under the slides if you get a machine to do the counting for you okay uh, that's basic okay. now there are also some methods that require incubation now these are still direct methods and that's Something that we get in lab, serial dilution, and then counting plate, you know, the number of colonies on the plate. That's that's a, a, a direct method, but it requires incubation. So that once you uh, do your plates, you're going to have to wait 24 to 48 hours before you can a count. And uh, so that, that that definitely induces a delay. These are often called viable. Uh, Bacterial counts because the only ones you're going to count since you're counting colonies The only ones that are going to form colonies are going to be the live cells Any dead cells are not going to form a colony and therefore they don't get counted So in that sense, it's a little more accurate Uh, And so this is the typical uh, Arrangement and this is basically what you got when you did it Uh, You had two numerous to count and then uh, Actually you had more than you had four plates, sorry, three plates there were two numerous as most groups did, and then you had one plate that you could count. And uh, you wouldn't normally calculate off of this one because there's only six, but what you expect to see is about a tenfold lower number as you go to each plate, because you're diluting at one to ten, right? and so you're expecting to see about you know, dividing it by ten to get the approximate number. And of course, this is only an example, it doesn't always come out that nicely. Up. And then this, doing this, knowing the dilution, then you can calculate what the uh, concentration of your critters was back in your original sample, which is, again, what we did in life. Now, the other, another way you can do this is membrane filtration. You put a sample, a, a measured sample, in a filter. Um, generally, this uh, would be a funnel with a filter here that has holes smaller than bacteria. Uh, And those are easily available. Uh, We used them in our uh, phage lab here. Uh, They are small enough that uh, viruses can go through the filter, but bacteria cannot. And so it's a way of filtering out any bacteria you might have in your sample. And since we're interested in the viruses, we don't care that they go through the filter, because that's exactly what we want. Uh, There are not many filtration systems that can filter out viruses. They're so tiny, it's very difficult to do. But you can filter out bacteria with very little difficulty. And so uh, this is kind of what it looks like, this is the filter, you see the little openings. And these bacteria are just too large to fit through those. So you uh, put your uh, measured sample, you make sure that it all filters through here, then you take this membrane, this filter membrane off, and you put it directly on an auger plate. And then any organisms that are on the membrane that are alive are going to grow. And then you can count colonies generally this is a much smaller volume but this is just another way of of doing it you probably would have to do a serial dilution before you did this or you'd have too many organisms now there's also an indirect uh, method and that's uh by how cloudy the uh, for this works only for broth does not obviously work for the the plates but the more organisms you have in the broth the cloudier it's going to be we call that turbidity and you can measure that simply by shining the light through and measuring how much light gets through. And uh, so if you uh, have, if you do this regularly, what people do is they make up known amounts of bacteria and put them in the uh, spectrophotometer and, and measure the amount of light. And then they plot that and basically what you get is a standard curve. And then you can take your unknowns and you can see how much light goes through them and find where they are. again does not distinguish between dead and live uh, and if you don't have very many and there's a lot of people picked up on that on the don't uh, work are they uh, library works uh, you uh, if you don't have very many it doesn't work very well because it's there's not enough turbidity to really give you anything okay. so again, lots of methods okay so this is the Okay, now there's a few others that are not nearly as commonly used. You can measure metabolic activity. If you know what what products your bacterium is producing, you can measure how much of it they produce, form a standard curve, and then take your unknown find out how much it produces, see where it falls on that curve, and make an estimate of, of the number of bacteria. Uh, dry weight, I have never seen anybody actually do this, uh, but it is another way. You simply, uh, you filter them out and you dry them and then you simply weigh them okay. and you're assuming probably a certain weight for an organism and then you can figure out about how And add and then uh, you can also isolate uh, DNA sequences that's another method okay so those are all methods then of uh, figuring out how many Okay, and that gets us to the end of this section on bacterial growth. Yes? Can you say what metabolic activity is again about your eye Oh, metabolic activity would be uh, metabolites that the organism produces while it's normally growing. It could be, in some cases, it could be a a gas you could measure. Uh, If they're fermenting, they may produce carbon dioxide, they may produce methane. Uh, You uh, could measure... uh, if they're producing a particular type of acid, you could assay the, the, uh, the, the growth uh, meaning for the presence of that particular uh, molecule, and figure out you know, how much you had. The problem again is you would have to have a standard curve made up first. Otherwise, you wouldn't have any reference point. So you get some number, and you say, I was that?" That's one of the problems. Okay. Okay. It is similar to uh, the uh, back here to the folder counter. Uh, basically, uh, your uh, your material with the cells in it flows through a, a machine which simply counts the cells. Instead of using a little electrical, electronic thing, they use a different method, and I'm not sure what that method is. I've never seen it again. I've never seen do that. But these are the advantage it doesn't require any incubation. The disadvantage is that what you're measuring here, whether it's a change in electric potential or what the change you're measuring here, dead cells will register along the live cells. So that makes it, again, not attacking. All right, so having talked about their growth and how fast they grow, uh, then we come to the issue, which in the health, allied health area, this is particularly an issue, and is how do we control that growth? Okay, well, what are the means by which we can limit growth so that we uh, are not as exposed to microbes? I mean, we all know that we're exposed to microbes all day, every day. interested in some of the pathogens here okay and so there's a few definitions here I'll just kind of run through them Uh, this is uh, on the slide you'll see these terms used when you talk about antiseptics you're usually talking about a reduction in the number of microorganisms on living tissue generally used on living tissue now that would be potential pathogens would also be non-pathogens but uh, antiseptics are safe to use on living tissue so in the, in the lab, you use mouthwashes. Obviously, we use that on living tissue, and it doesn't, doesn't kill us. Okay, uh, and so alcohol is one. Iodine is another. Uh, you can use that on live tissue. The iodine used to be used commonly as a uh, topical antiseptic. Uh, and so, the, the goal, of course, with many of these, is to get to an aseptic condition. Nobody, we don't, we never do. Uh, well, I shouldn't say never, hardly ever. So, aseptic means I've got an environment where there are no pathogens there, aseptic. I'm not going to try and say there are no microbes there at all, but there are no known pathogens present. Okay. If you put the uh, suffix C-I-D-E on the end, uh, like bactericide, uh this means that it actually kills the cells. You could have a fungicide you know, and side you can have a uh, uh, even with protozoans, you can have you know, silent type of uh, uh germicide is a kind of a all-encompassing term. Uh I, I never like the term and people just use germs because that's much. Um, but it's a, a commonly used term. Uh and so um we'll be looking at some of those. Now uh, Degerming, not a term that I ever see used, but obviously it's a removal of microbes Mechanically by by rubbing and hand-washing really is an example of that Okay, you're removing Organisms from your hand by you know hands by washing your hands Um, And and so that's basically what you're doing now when we get to a disinfection or disinfectant Here we have something that is usually stronger than an antiseptic. It is normally only used on Um, And so uh, phenols, uh, some alcohols, um, the aldehydes, uh, are going to be used on on non-living tissue. uh, And they, again, get rid of most microbes from those surfaces. Usually they're stronger than antiseptics. uh, Although probably the very first antiseptic used was phenolic acid, which today we would never use. Because it damages live tissue. But at the time, it was what they started with. Okay, Uh, and it was relatively effective, okay, but uh, it damaged some of the live tissue. Uh, Pasteurization, we'll be doing a whole lab on pasteurization, uh, working with milk, Um, although many other things are pasteurized. So we use heat to destroy pathogens, not any attempt to get rid of all microbes. Um, And the real uh, intent of this is to increase shelf life primarily. I mean it's public health also, public health aspect, but also increases shelf life. And, and so the kind of pasteurization you do uh, will, that's what the shelf life will depend on. Typical milk shelf life uh, after it gets into a store is about, about a week. Uh, just plain pasteurization. Now if you get the, uh, the, 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 the products, and, and you can find them in most of the stores anymore, that are, and I, I want to say, um, hyper-pasteurized. That's not the term they use I'm trying to think of the term right now. Uh, but they're, they're just simply pasteurized at a much higher temperature. Ultra. Ultra-pasteurized, yeah. And and they keep for much longer. You, you get, take one of those out, it'll usually have a date on it that's a month or so away. Uh, and all, by doing a higher temperature, uh, basically you're getting rid of more pathogens. Or not just pathogens, you're getting rid of more microbes. The standard milk you buy in the store is never free of microbes. If it was completely free of microbes, it wouldn't sour. I mean, the fact that it goes bad is because there are microbes in there that, that ferment, they produce organic acids like lactic acid or some of the others, and that eventually curdles the milk. Because uh, if, you know, if you want to, you know, if you can experiment with that, just add some lemon juice to a cup of milk. You can just watch the milk curdle right there in front of you acids that cause that, they change the proteins. And, uh, and basically uh, yogurt is a product of that process. Uh, that's what the bacteria are doing. They're producing acid, mostly lactic acid, which is why plain yogurt is, is really sour. If you ever, not many people eat plain yogurt. Uh, some people use some cooking sometimes, but they rarely they eat it just plain. And it, because it's very sour, and, and that sourness is a, is the result of the acids. Mostly lactic. All right. Sanitization, not a term you see used a lot anymore. Um, it is removing pathogens to meet some public health standard. So in theory, you go into a restaurant, somebody comes out with a bucket or something or a spray bottle and they spray down the table and they wipe it off. They are sanitizing the table. Okay? They are reducing the number of pathogens to a level that the public health department has. Certainly not getting rid of all. Uh, for a long time, um, and of course, washing dishes in hot water, really hot water, is a form of sanitization. I remember back many years ago when you went into a motel. Just before there were so many chain motels, there'd always be a piece of paper over the toilet that said, "This has been sanitized for your protection." And whatever. Of course, you know I was just a kid; I didn't know what that meant. Uh, but all it meant is a Okay, stasis and static. Okay, this, these two terms should be compared to these two. side and sidle means we kill it. Stasis or static means we don't kill it, we simply stop it from growing. Okay, uh, so we inhibit them, but we don't kill them. Okay? Um, and the terms are just like up here, bacteriostatic, fungistatic, and so on. Uh, refrigeration is probably the most common bacteriostatic method that's used. It stops them from growing, it doesn't kill anyone. And then lastly, the goal in many cases is sterilization. And that means everything is dead. Everything's gone. Bacteria, viruses, everything is gone. This rarely happens. Okay, uh, usually it's done only in small volumes. Uh, So, some, uh, they, uh, when we make uh, culture media in the lab, when you get your auger plates, that culture media has been auto which essentially renders it sterile, okay? So that there's, when you uh, inoculate it with something, you don't get a lot of other things growing unless they manage to fall in out of the air, which they do occasionally, okay? So, so that's typically done. Um, usually it's done in a relatively small, you know, it's done with uh, instruments in hospitals and dentist offices. Like that, uh, you cannot uh, sterilize a whole room like this very well. And if you remember the video that we had on the nightmare bacteria, uh, the, with the uh, up at uh, the uh, I guess it was Bethesda. They, they could not sterilize their uh, their uh, critical care. They tried, but they were not successful. It's really hard to sterilize. Any So, these are terms that you see used along with uh, this whole thing about uh, uh, restricting growth of bacteria. All right, now there are three types of controls that we're going to look at. We're going
1: to look at physical
0: controls first, then chemical controls, and then lastly, antimicrobial drugs. And after that, there's not much left. That's pretty much the whole. All right, now before we start on that, I'm going to mention another term here. It's called the decimal reduction time. And basically uh, it is the amount of time at a given temperature, whatever temperature that is being used, it's the amount of time that it takes to kill 90% of the organic microbes that are present. That's your decimal reduction time. So every one of these 90% are have been eliminated only 10% are left. So this goes on and on, and, and you know, of course, rarely do they go for a very long time periods. Uh, but it, it's just a measure. It's a, a measure that's used that you said, all right, this amount of time at this temperature with this process, 90% of your microbes will be will be killed or eliminated. Okay. Uh, it's kind of like Zeno's paradox if you've ever heard of that. Uh, you know, if you're running from one place to another over a certain amount of time, you're halfway there, okay? And then from that spot to the next one, over a certain amount of time, you're halfway there. And if you keep doing that, you're always halfway there, but you never actually get there, okay? Well, you actually do in reality, but it's called Zeno's paradox. It's a Greek um, philosopher who, who did that. Uh, and it was obviously making a point that, uh, that, you know, you, and logically, you don't ever get it to the end. All, you divide it in half, Smaller and smaller and smaller. This is essentially what they do with calculus. When you're doing integrals under the curve, they're dividing them into small enough parts that you actually get an answer, okay, at some point. All right, so decimal reduction time. There's also going to be a thermal death time, different, okay, this is decimal reduction. I'm reducing 90%. I'm getting rid of 90%. Thermal death time is how long does it take to kill 100% at a specific temperature? So let's say we say 121 degrees centigrade. How long does does something have to be left at that temperature to kill 100% of the microbes? That's your thermal death time. Thermal, so always keep in mind it's a temperature. Essentially it's what uh, autoplates do. thermal death rate? There would be, yes. You could plot this, and then you could get a rate. So the, thermal death rate yes. it's the It's probably, if you wanted to look at it, this is the time it takes to kill 100%. Your thermal death rate is how many are killed in each time you All sense. Sorry. All right, so uh, some basic principles. All right, so what are antimicrobial agents going to do? Okay, now there's a number of approaches that, that we use. Uh, so, the first thing is we can alter the cell wall and the cell membrane in some way. We're going to get into how they do it a little bit later. Um, cell wall maintains the, the cell and it keeps its shape. It keeps it from bursting from the osmotic pressure um, and if you don't maintain the cell wall if you damage the cell wall the cell is going to die and it's going to burst and die the same would be true of cell membranes okay now normally if you, if you uh, affect the cell membrane all living things have a cell membrane separating the living material inside from what's outside if you disrupt that cell membrane they will die So, that's one approach. You can do something that's going to alter cell walls and cell membranes. Okay, another approach is to, uh, let's go after the proteins and the nucleic acids that are inside. Proteins are essential for all of the metabolic uh, functions. They have to maintain a specific three-dimensional shape. If I can do anything that alters their three-dimensional shape, they're not going to function, the cell's going to die. Now that might be heat, it might be chemicals, it might be any number of different things, but this is another approach. You could do the same thing uh, uh, with uh, looking at the uh, nucleic acids. Uh, And there you would use different things, but again, if you damage nucleic acids, then the cell is not going to be able to divide and produce offspring. Uh, Ideally it produces mutants that cause it to die, but it probably can't reproduce and so you essentially stopped it. So, um, second approach, one approach, cell wall, cell membrane, second approach is internal proteins and nucleic acids. Now what are the factors that affect how effective are antimicrobial methods are? Well, first thing is you have to look at what am I treating. Okay, if I'm treating a person, then I'm limited to certain things. I can't put them in the autoclave. Uh, that's not an option. Okay? Uh, certain chemicals and, and radiation I wouldn't use on, on a human. If I'm looking at a non-living uh, uh, material then I can do things to that that I can't do to the living material. So the first thing then you have to look at is what am I treating? Is it living? Is it non-living? How big is it? You know is it bigger than a red box? Is it smaller than a red box? Although nobody knows what a red box is anymore. Okay, We have one in our kitchen when I was a kid. I don't know, they worked all that well. They just, I guess they kept the bread from drying out, some uh, and I don't think they used as many preservatives back then. Okay, yeah. So bread boxes about it. Okay. Um, you don't even you hear that used quite so much anymore. But it was a common reference at that time. Uh, so, uh, so the, uh, the so it's going to be based on what you're treating. And then if it's a human or if it's living, what part of the animal are you needing to treat? That may also have an effect as to what you would use. Okay, so this is kind of a chart here of the things that are most resistant to antimicrobial agents, to those that are most susceptible. And interestingly, it never made sense to me, is that enveloped viruses are the most sensitive you think they have got an extra layer around them. You'd think that would, it, no, it doesn't work that way. They are very, very sensitive. Then you get the gram positives, which are relatively sensitive, non enveloped viruses, fungi, gram negatives. You get into the middle, gram negatives are much more difficult to work with. Active stage of protozoans and then the cysts of protozoans, that's their resistant stage, mycobacteria, endospores. Not this week, but next week, we're doing endosporinating, so see those. And then lastly are the prions. The prions are nions and (laughs) endostructions. So they see. That just gives you an idea of of the the range of things. And so, again, when you are going to be treating something, you want to have some idea of what it is you're trying to treat, so that you know at what level you really, you can expect results. Um, so, uh, there is uh, a classification of germicides, there's high level, that kills everything, okay? Including endospores. And that's important to know, because often many treatments will kill all of the growing bacteria and not kill endospores. Okay? Uh, intermediate level, you will kill living cells, you'll kill, uh, fungal spores, protozoan cysts, viruses, pathogenic, but not endospores. And then low levels kill vegetative bacteria, and basically the, the, the growing organisms of nothing else. None of the spores, the cysts, none of those resistant stages are affected by that. Can you give us examples of each? Uh, we're going we're to go through that. Okay. Yeah, you will get examples of that. Yeah, this is uh, kind of gives you an idea of the effect uh, of temperature. It depends on what temperature you're doing, you're using a particular treatment on. The higher temperature the faster it works. and okay. Higher temperatures usually way too uh, more effective. Again, it depends on what you're treating some things you can't do that Okay, And this leads us to biosafety levels in the lab. Now we're a biosafety level one lab here. Uh, most uh, teaching uh, four years or two years schools would fall into this category. Uh, And that means that we can legally only handle pathogens that do not cause disease in healthy individuals. So, I mean, clearly E. coli is somewhat of a pathogen. Uh, uh, Strep mutans causes tooth decay, things like that. Uh, But a normal healthy person is not going to be particularly affected by by any of those. Um, Now, if we go to biosafety level two, then we are handling... Hazardous ages, but not all that hazardous, okay? I mean things that are potentially pathogenic um, But normally don't cause a great deal of problem Usually what we're looking at here is something that is easily treated, okay? So if you got infected it would be easily easily treated and got raped, okay? uh, Around here uh, William & Mary it, it does do biosafety level 2 some, some that. I don't know I don't know anybody in the local area that is biosafety level three or four. Uh, definitely not four. Biosafety level three is probably uh, up in uh, BC and particularly in the medical school. Uh, research there. Uh, maybe at OGU yeah. a safety cabinet like a the hood then? Yeah. A, a safety of... cabinet is a hood. Um, but it's not a, a chemical hood. It is a biological hood that has uh, a particular type of airflow it has um, uh, filters in it that will block all the way down to tiny particles bacteria sometimes the virus is not so easy but it's just like your, your vacuum cleaner it says it's got a HEPA filter in it HEPA filter is supposed to screen anything down through bacteria of course that assumes that you're going to change it regularly so once they get all clogged up they don't work so well yeah filters two and three, or just... HEPA filter would be, would be usually Well, you'd use it with everything above one. You'd be using heavy filters. But there's more to it. Biological safety cabinet also has in it, uh, uh, first of all, the airflow is always from the outside of the room into the cabinet. And then it it, it vents through filtering through a separate ventilation system from the rest of the building. Uh, Okay, so that's a requirement. It also has ultraviolet lights inside that you can turn on and sterilize the cabinet. Because ultraviolet is one of the things pretty awful on bacteria Uh, and it works really well but they would have ultraviolet lights uh, in it. Uh, You might have one of these even in a biosafety level 2 lab but they're required in biosafety level 3 mandatory. Uh, When you get to biosafety level 4 now you have to have completely separate rooms with uh, negative pressure rooms so that if the door opens air rushes in it doesn't rush out okay so that something should something happen they have to have an autoclave inside of the room. Uh, you can't take anything that's in there out to be, to be sterilized, to autoclave right in the room. Um, generally, individuals working have to wear uh, the you know, spacesuit arrangement, and they have uh, a connected to them an outside source of air, so they're not breathing any of the air that's inside the room. Uh, those are only about five of those around the country. They're not a lot of them. CDC has one, uh, Fort Detrick has one. I believe they're building one up at uh, in Boston, and then there's a couple, there's two or three more out there. Uh, very expensive. And if you're not really going to be working with those kind of organisms all the time, then nobody would bother, bother doing that. This is what it looks like in a biosafety for So that person is completely sealed from the air in the room. now when, when they are done and everything's been cleaned up, everything that they are wearing will be disposed of or are cleaned in a way that kills everything off to be sterilized but i think usually they're generally considered disposable yeah, yeah it is well when you're working with something like Ebola you know So you can see there he's plugged into an air supply here, and they, uh, it, you really can't see where, where, where the hose goes, but it will go up to the ceiling somewhere. And you know, it's, it's kind of like in a, in a car repair where they've got to you know, pull down things and they move just like that. So they move around the room and still have an outside source of air. It is a very high stress environment Just no mistakes. so having gone over a little bit of an introductory section on this what we're going to look at first are physical methods of control okay and the first and the most common one is heat heat is used more probably than any other physical method Uh, high temperatures uh, obviously affect proteins they affect uh, they can interfere with the uh, the cell membrane and the cell wall they can disrupt uh, nucleic like acids we talked about, thermal death point, thermal death time uh, and uh, so heat is the most common method that's used. Now there are two kinds of heat. Again, the most common is moist heat. This is what we do in an autoplay. Uh, we disinfect, we sanitize, we sterilize, we pasteurize, we do lots of things with moist heat that denatures proteins, destroys cytoplasmic membranes much more effective than dry heat and we'll get into that in just a moment. Um, so there are a lot of ways that we use moist heat. Uh, if you ever did at home canning or you knew anybody did they boil stuff and put stuff in boiling water that's a form of moist heat uh, control. You have to boil them for a certain time period and use you, uh, you want to be very careful that you do the full time period because uh, if you don't you won't kill any spores and that's why they're occasionally Die, uh, from uh, home canned foods, uh, from uh, uh, clostridium infections. Botulism, basically. Yeah. You can't. You have to follow the directions and then you make the assumption that you killed them all. If it's there, it will grow. It's anaerobic. (coughs) There will be nothing to give you an indication other than there might be some pressure on the lid. They always tell you that those things, if the lid is pushed up, don't open it, don't even open it. Okay, Uh, that's one of the signs that there's something wrong, but it has no odor at all. No No color change, no odor. It produces a gas that puts the lid up, but it doesn't smell like and it's a toxin that gets you, again, it's a toxin, which has no taste. Uh, it's not common, but we have a thing on here just about, what was it, a couple weeks ago, something like that. And you don't see it much anymore. Very few people do home canning anymore. It's probably more common than we know. Uh, but if you follow all the directions for canning, then it's, uh, you know, people have been doing it for a long time, and very few people have ever died Uh, well, it's most prevalent in acidic foods. And so canned tomatoes have always been the, uh, the culprit you know, uh, you know, that people look to. Uh, but we were, well, it was Florida, and we went into a little grocery store to get something, and there was a can of something that we wanted, and that the top of that can, was like in the Superdome, you know, <laughs> we just kind of walked out, so we had to buy it. Uh, I don't know how long it was I didn't want it. Okay. Uh, so, boiling is one method, which is uh, a household method, uh, you, uh, and the pressure that you use has an effect on the temperature at which water boils, okay, this is an issue. If you live out west, in the mountains, where we used to live in an area where the elevation was about 6,700 feet elevation water boils at a lower temperature because there's less atmosphere, there's less atmospheric pressure. So that means that if you were going <coughs> to hand something, you would have to boil it for a much longer time period to compensate. Uh, now the other option is you could use uh, a, a pressure cooker. Pressure cookers increase the pressure and therefore they don't have to be cooked for long. That's why people use pressure cookers. you increase the, the pressure, the boiling the, the point of the water way up, then you get a lot more. That's essentially what an autoclave is. An autoclave puts them under pressure, and therefore the, you get that, and we use steam inside the autoclave, but the extra pressure means that that steam is at a higher temperature than it would be just steam coming off of a lot on your stove. So pressure and temperature, you know, if you remember any of your chemistry, they're, they're very intimately related. Uh, and, and that matters. And, Okay, pasteurization is another type of moist heat arrangement, uh, and as is the ultra-high temperature. Uh, and there's al- well, ultra-high temperature sterilization, uh, again, a really high temperature is what, what works. Okay, these are all moist heat-related methods, a okay. couple of which are, you know, three of which, are routinely used. Well, two of which are routinely used by everybody, and, uh, to be an autoclave Although you can buy autoclaves. Anybody work in a dentist office? They have little autoclaves. Yeah, if you go into go to the dentist next time, sometimes sitting over on the shelf they'll be a little brand thing like this. Little, uh, that's just a, a mini autoclave. And that's where they autoclave the uh, the series. Because they can't they're not gonna reuse you can't just wash them with soap and soak them water and then use them again on somebody else. You have to, you know, they they put them in that, in the paper. The papers usually has when they start has a certain color to it. And it changes color when it's been at the proper temperature and pressure for long enough, so that you know that it was effective. When we use autoclaves, uh, um, well, at least over at William and Mary, they have autoclave tape. And when you look at it, there's some faint white lines on it, but when it's been in the autoclave and it has reached the proper temperature, they turn brown. So you see, you know, so all you have to do is look at it, and you know that it's been successful. Okay. So, moist heat, the most, the single most common. Uh, so boiling, so here's a little bit about what they kill. Uh, boiling will kill vegetative cells. Uh, the time is critical. I mentioned about uh, the, the elevations. Endospores and cysts and some viruses will survive boiling. i yeah. uh, to go back and look. It probably mid-level. Low a bit more. Autoclaving: Okay, we apply pressure so the the, uh, the boiling water. So it's basically uh, 121 degrees centigrade, uh, 15 psi, which is basically uh, not really high pressure, but it's an elevated pressure. And about 15 minutes under those conditions, and uh, that is enough for in your your materials. Okay, this is just a uh, a graph showing the relationship between temperature uh, and the pressure so as the pressure goes up the temperature of boiling water so at, at one at zero at, at normal sea level it boils at 100 degrees centigrade and then as you start raising the pressure you can see that water boils at higher temperatures which is part of the uh, again, we don't own the pressure cooker but my mom did when I was growing up things sitting on the top of the jumping around, steam escaping out, uh, heat escaping out. Uh, but you can cook food in a much more, much more because you've got the pressure. And this is what an autoclave looks like. Uh, we have one in uh, the prep room here. Uh, there's a larger one in the prep room down in Hampton, and, uh, and a research lab would have much larger ones. This is a small one here. This is like a dental office size. Looks like a microwave. Looks like a microwave oven. You know, basically, uh, but uh, this is basically how they work. Now you do have to be really careful with them because since they're under pressure and they have steam in them, there's always the potential for, for accidents. Uh, and you have to really make sure that you don't try to open them before they. It, usually the machine tells you now when it's ready to be opened. Uh, the ones at William and Mary, you can't open until it lets you. Tells you that it's ready to open. Ours here, you could. Thing open try to open it before it was ready and then you'll get hot steam and everything right out of the base. So, always wait until it's completely cooled down, it has vented, and then you can open it. Okay, so pasteurization used primarily for things that we're going to that we're going to drink. Uh, uh, or eat Ice cream, milk, yogurt, fruit juices, uh, sometimes honey, um, beer yeah beer is sometimes pasteurized although that's a big deal these days or it was uh that a lot of beer and you will not find the, the local craft beer is never pasteurized it's always going to be filtered and we'll get to that later Pasteurize no because you would that would not work um, so it's not sterilized as you'll see when we do this in lab your milk in the bottle especially if, even if it's a fresh bottle there's, there's still microbes in it. and they're going to grow two methods there's the batch method which basically you fill up a big tank and you raise the temperature in there up to the appropriate temperature and hold it and then you let it back out that's not used by commercial dairies they use what's called flash pasteurization they have a series of pipes that go through milk goes through and it's held at the proper temperature long enough in the pipe and then it just continues on and out so Sometimes you notice uh, noticed, uh, go to the grocery store and they have this uh, two for one sale on ice cream or something like that. Uh, check the expiration dates on those. And probably what's happening is they're getting close to their expiration date. And they figure, hey, somebody will buy it you know, it's better than just throwing it away. There's nothing wrong with it. Generally, um, frozen products keep longer. Ultra high is 140 degrees, only one to three seconds, and then you you, uh, rapidly uh, cool it. And then once you've treated them, you can store them at room temperature. In fact, we do that here when we make uh, liquid media for bacteria. Once it's been pasteurized, you seal the top, and you can just put it on the shelf. It doesn't need to be refrigerated uh, because it's sterile. Uh, And in fact, we prefer to keep it out at room temperature because after a few days, if you start to see something growing in it, I'd rather know now than later, because okay. I always make more media, It's pretty easy to do. Okay, now the other heat related, and then almost to the end for today, day, uh, is dry heat. Now there are some things that you can't use moist heat on. Uh, paper products sometimes, you know, the, the moisture would damage them. Uh, and so you may want to use dry heat. Uh, this also denatures proteins, uh, you know, and uh, some of the structural chemicals. You have to hold it at a higher temperature for a much longer time because without the moisture, it does not work as well. Uh, It uh, it does work, but it's usually only used for something that, for a variety of reasons, cannot go in the Uh, oven. Basically, another. And then the ultimate sterilization is incinerating. Not a lot of that. But of course, you don't have anything left either. So, okay, so it's sterile, big deal. Okay, this is what we use uh, in the lab. Okay, you've used these already. They will uh, uh, sterilize, basically, you're sterilizing your needle your with those. Uh, they call them back incinerators. I think that's a trade name. I don't think it's necessarily a but they work fine okay so that's physical control with heat and like I said you'll see heat probably used if you really want to sterilize something or you want to reduce the number of microbes heat is generally the most commonly used method. Okay. Now, uh, <coughs> but, uh, I almost okay. now the next method we're going to look at is refrigeration or freezing which We would be lost without these days. I mean, can you imagine living somewhere with no refrigeration, no way of freezing anything? We just can't even imagine what that's like. Uh, It decreases the metabolism of the organisms to almost zero. And so rarely does it kill them, but it really stops them. Chemical reactions are really slowed down. Uh, When you freeze them, there's no liquid water available. So they can't really do anything. So generally stops growth. Uh, There are a few that can grow in refrigerated foods, but they're not. Listeria is one of them that we we do uh, hear about occasionally. So this is a a commonly used method. Now people have used refrigeration for probably a very long time in northern climates during the winter. uh, You know they would freeze, they would just put stuff outside and freeze it, or they dig a hole and put it down in there and cover it so animals didn't get at it, but it would freeze, and then that was. That was a good way of, of maintaining things. I uh, used to do vacation in Canada with my parents, and we went to a lodge up there, and they had an ice house. And so every winter that people would go out on the lake, and they'd cut chunks of, you know, big blocks of ice, and they'd drag them in, put them in there, cover it with sawdust to keep it from, uh, you know, from melting quickly. And they would have ice all summer long. Now, they did have electricity, so refrigerators were available. But that's what people used to do, uh, is uh, they uh, used ice. Where did the ice come from well of course today we make ice but originally it came from Carthor, north country the little room toy to go out and cut blocks of ice out of lakes and they would pack it into wagons and they'd take it to ships and the ships would take it to wherever that's that was all there was uh, dr heil who's not here anymore he, he retired a few years ago he grew up in uh, and uh, he remembers as a small child following the ice man, you know, running after the ice man, getting little slivers of ice when it's hot in the summer, because they have no air conditioning or anything like that. Uh, and so there were people at that point who were still using the tops of ice. Which is where the name icebox came from. That's why it was called an icebox. Put ice in it and you put your food in there and that, and you'd have to get fresh. Uh, a big block of ice takes a long time to melt. It doesn't melt had to get ice on a regular basis so we're pretty fortunate uh that, you know we just throw things in the refrigerator or the freezer nothing has no second thought about it it hasn't always been that way and that uh is, so that's something that's a benefit for us uh, i have been places where there was no refrigeration you go to a, a store a butcher shop in a, in a small market town and there'll be half a goat Hanging by his hoof from out, outside, right in front. And people want some meat, they will cut a chunk of it off and give it to you. And, you know, to shoot the flies away first. Uh, yeah, but that's, that's the way people live. And that's why people who live like that, they go shopping, they have to shop for food every day. And they have to get food every day because they have no way of preserving it, or relatively few ways of preserving it. Uh, and so they go to the market on, on a daily basis. you watch The uh, well, Christmas Carol, you know, a little bit, you can see some of them. Remember you know, the, the, the shop, the turkeys hanging in the shop window, the, you know, that's what they did. No refrigeration. Okay, so we, we use that quite a lot. Now you can also go a little step further, uh, and you can do, uh, well, you can dry it out as well. Now, drying removes water. Okay, without water, not much is going to grow at all, even microbes, they don't grow without water. Uh, and so it's a pretty effective method, and we've used that, humans have used that for generations. You know, they uh, cut thin strips of meat, hang them out, dry them in the sun. Up in Alaska, they still catch uh, fish, and they hang they, they fillet them, and they hang them out on, on racks in the sun, and they dry them out, and that's their food. Well, traditionally, it was their food for the winter. Uh, in, in some of the smaller villages that still is their primary food. Uh, yeah? How um, would they eat that? Would they cook it in water? They could cook it, or the, sometimes they just take a chunk off if you want. yeah, you it into like, does it get, get it in some water, with water Oh yeah, you can, uh, when you, when you uh, desiccate something like that, you can uh, you can put the water back in. Uh, uh, Salt Cod, is a, is a staple food in, in the Scandinavian countries, it still has actually used quite a bit, but they salt the cod, which essentially desiccates it. Okay, that's what the salt is really good for that. And then when they want to use it, they soak it back in water again, and remove the salt. Before they,
1: and you never get all the salt out
0: it, but they get a lot of it out. And so yeah, it will, it will reabsorb some of that. Uh, so desiccation works. Now the next step beyond that is lyophilization freeze drying. You freeze and dry at the same time, basically your water sublimates; It doesn't even go through an evaporative stage. It goes directly from, uh, yeah. you know, you freeze it and then it goes directly from ice to gone. Um, and, and you can see that actually happen uh, on a large scale out in Montana in the winter. Uh, sometimes uh, when you get snow on the ground and you get the winds come down off the mountains and the snow just disappears. It's called Chinook winds in there which means meant in the native language. Years. And the snow just simply just, doesn't melt. There's no water laying around. It's just gone. You know, uh, it's amazing to watch uh, when that happens. You know, freeze-drying is used quite a bit. Anybody who uses camping food or MREs, that's freeze-dried stuff. Okay. Uh, that's what's done. The nice thing is it's very lightweight. because There's no water in it. The water's heavy. Uh, although usually you need water to, to eat it. Uh, you know, you, at least you should have water in it. Uh, do not want to any of those without some water. Yeah. So it's called Chinook. Chinook. Yeah. Chinook. So. Chinook, Winters. Um, C-H-I-N-O-O-K. It's also the name of the bookstore. C-H-I-N-O-O-K. The Army has a helicopter called the Chinook. Uh, and so, anyway, i um, you got to do this. The first things that came out commercially for people, I remember, I don't drink coffee, so I don't really care. I'm, I know I'm kind of strange, but I don't like coffee. But I can remember when Folgers, no, it was before Folgers, there was another company came out with freeze-dried crystals. They were freeze-dried coffee, and so it was in crystals rather than ground-up coffee. It was a big advertising deal. I don't know if it would what it does for Okay, we'll stop there, and uh, we'll pick up from this spot next uh, week. Don't forget to print out the uh, the uh, supplemental sheet for last for Wednesday night design blackboard. So that uh, you have that. This was on. Yeah. Yeah. And if you want to go to it, just go sort Google of or whatever you love. Yeah. Um, I did comment call men one word. That's a space man. Okay. That, that okay. 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 Yeah. okay. Yeah. Okay, thank you. Mm-hmm. Oh. Okay.